The book was released in January, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote for Chaos, has been a best-selling sensation on just about every single best-selling book list. Peterson said his book idea came from an online Q&A session that he participated in when a question was asked to him, what are the most valuable things that everybody should know in life? His initial response was 40 different rules of living. Since then, he has trimmed that list down into 12 rules with lengthy essays explaining each one, which correspond to the 12 chapters of his recent book. To get a little flavor of his rules, rule number one, stand up straight with your shoulders back. This chapter is all about lobsters. Rule number five, do not let your children do anything that make you dislike them. This is the chapter that every parent needs to read. Rule number 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Since the book released in January, all kinds of people have been responding with their own 12 rules for living. For example, well-known blogger and economist Tyler Cowen jumped in. One of his rules, rule number seven, learn how to learn from those who offend you. A good one, I think. There's also the columnist Megan McArdle, rule number 12. Always make more dinner rules, rolls than you think you can eat. For some reason, dinner rolls loom much larger in our imaginations than in our stomachs. For a while, everywhere you looked, people were sharing rules for living on their social media websites, on blogs. Even during celebrity awards speeches, a few weeks ago, my wife shared with me Chris Pratt winning the MTV Generation Award. He gave nine rules for living to the next generation of young people, and a few of them were very silly, but most of them were actually quite good. Rule number one, breathe. If you don't, you will suffocate. Rule number two, you have a soul. Be careful with it. Rule number six, God is real, God loves you, God wants the best for you, believe it, I do. Rule number eight, learn to pray. It's easy and it's so good for your soul. Rule number nine, nobody's perfect. People are gonna tell you that you're perfect just the way you are, but you're not. You're imperfect, you always will be, but there is a powerful force that has designed you And if you are willing to accept your imperfections, you will receive grace. And grace is a gift. Like the great freedoms we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for us by someone else's blood. Don't forget it and don't ever take it for granted. Well, what should we make of this rule-making phenomenon, rules for living that's happening all around us in 2018? Do you have a set of rules that you live by? Should Christians have guiding principles that they summarize for how they should live? This morning, as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel, in Jesus' most famous teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, I want to encourage all of you to adopt Jesus' rules for living. Actually, similar, similar to Jordan Peterson, Jesus started with a very long list of rules, not 40, but 613 to be exact. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, if you turn your Bibles there, it's page 812 in the black Bibles around you. 
Jesus is going to summarize all 613 rules from the Old Testament into one single rule for living. So before anyone gets interested or excited about picking up Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for living, by the way, I don't believe he's an evangelical Christian. He believes in God and he's a psychologist, and so the book's probably got a lot of good things and bad things. But before you get excited about that, let's look at Jesus and his words. Just over 2,000 years ago, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In your bulletins, you may see that the sermon title is Jesus, the narrow gate. Or you may see that the sermon is to be verses 12 through 14. I want to just focus on verse 12 today and save that next section for the weeks to come. As you'll see as we go through it, the editors that put the golden rule in a paragraph together, verses 12 through 14, I think could have served us better to put the next two verses, 13 and 14, about the narrow gate with the remaining section. More on that in a moment. But you have one point, one rule to live by, One takeaway for this message, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You've probably heard this before. It's often called the golden rule, as you see right here in these black Bibles in front of you. The editors also added that little title that wasn't originally there when the Bible was first written. Traditionally, the description of why it's been called the golden rule goes back to the Roman emperor Alexander Severus. About 200 years after Jesus was walking on the earth and giving this teaching, this emperor, who was not a Christian, apparently was so impressed with this saying from Jesus as a guide for good living that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber, and so the tradition goes that this is the golden rule. One of the struggles that I imagine all of you in this room are facing with the golden rule is its familiarity. It's so well known And when anything like this is so well-known, we tend to become apathetic toward applying it to our lives. Oh, sure, I've heard that before. Tell me something new. Well, I'm not going to tell you something new. I'm going to have us apply and think and meditate word by word through this text and continue to see how it applies to our lives. So, who doesn't agree with the golden rule? We would quickly assume that most of us would agree that this is a good rule. Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, it seems like most everybody has affirmed some sort of version of the golden rule. For example, outside of Christianity, almost every major religious movement or teacher has their own different version of the golden rule. There's a good chance that if this is your first time coming to a Christian church or reading the Bible, that you've still probably heard the golden rule in some form or fashion. Let me give you one example of this from the Jewish tradition. This would have been a few decades before Jesus came onto the scene. There were these two prominent rabbis, one named Shumai and one named Hillel. Shumai would have been the more conservative of the two rabbis, Hillel the more progressive, liberal, loosey-goosey type. Well, one Gentile, according to the tradition and the story goes, Gentile, non-Jew, approaches Shammai first 
And he goes up to him and he says, if you can teach me the whole Torah, which is the whole first five books of the New Old Testament, if you can teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one foot, then I will convert to Judaism. Shammai got so angry at such a blasphemous idea that he took a stick and he beat him until he ran away. The man then left and went over to Hillel, the more loosey liberal rabbi. He asked him the same question. If you can tell me the whole Torah as I stand on one leg, I will convert. Hillel says this. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. All the rest is just commentary. So as you can see, decades before Jesus comes onto the scene, there is an idea of the golden rule. But does that mean Jesus is a plagiarist? Did he just steal that from the Jewish rabbi Hillel? Because it sounds a lot like our text in Matthew 7, verse 12. Or maybe... This is what he got from Confucius. What I do not wish men to do to me, I also wish not to do to men. Or in Buddhism, hurt not others in ways that you yourselves would find hurtful. Or how about the Baha'i faith? Ascribe not to any soul that which you would not have ascribed to thee, and say not which you do not to others. Should we give credit to Jesus when it seems as if, like I said, Baha'i, Buddhism, Confucianism, or even Hinduism, this is the sum of duty, do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. For so long, people have called this Jesus' golden rule, but is it really Jesus's? I think the answer is yes and no. It's clear that this is not completely a new idea that Jesus invented, but I do think he kind of adjusted it. He furthered it. Some ethicists have suggested there are actually three different rules of living that fall under these three categories. The wooden rule, the silver rule, and then the golden rule. A word on each for a moment. First, the wooden rule. The wooden rule is simply do to others what they do to you. You should know this quite well. This is the way we live on this earth more often than not. Somebody gossips behind your back, so you slander them behind their back. Somebody says something mean on Facebook, and then there's millions of comments underneath of people going, tick for tat, you said this, well, I say this back. Somebody slaps you in the face, you punch them in the face. This is the wooden rule. This is not something that I would commend. This is probably what's happening over in the nursery right now. It's about toddler-level maturity. Anybody who's ever worked with toddlers or young children will sadly know that this is the lowest level of human morality. So I'm not suggesting we should be a proponent of the lowest level. We want to strive for the golden rule, not the wooden rule. One of the more provocative things that Jordan Peterson, who I quoted earlier, has said is that men and women today are actually a lot like toddlers, just in grown-up bodies. They need to grow up and they need to take responsibility for themselves. In other words, too many people are still living by the wooden rule. And again, just spend any time on Facebook, Twitter, read a treat, tweet by Donald Trump and then all the responses that follow, watch a YouTube video and then go to the comment section and you'll see that the wooden rule is alive and well by many people's guiding principle. Secondly, the silver rule. The silver rule is do not do to others 
what you would not want them to do to yourselves. Basically, it's the negative version of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 7. And if you paid close attention to all of the lists of other teachers and world religions that I just quoted from, you'll notice that that's essentially what they are suggesting, is the silver rule. And I think it's an improvement from the wooden rule, wouldn't you? It's the next level of maturity up from the wooden rule. It's not a new idea. It certainly predates Jesus, and it's all over the ancient world as a way to live by. I think you and I should strive to live at least by the silver rule, but as we'll see today, Jesus calls for something much more. When you think about the differences between the silver and the golden rule, the negative versus the positive way of stating it, it might at first seem like, isn't that just semantics? Aren't all the religions and ethicists kind of saying the same thing? And I say, No, not quite. There is a big difference between working toward not causing suffering in someone's life and proactively helping alleviate their suffering. And that would be the difference, I think, between the silver rule and the golden rule. Not doing harm to somebody, very good idea. Amen, yes, hopefully a lot of people are on board with that here in this room. I hope you're down with that idea, but... That's not the same idea as what Jesus said in Ro- earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Love your enemies. Or how about do not oppress the poor and make things worse for people in poverty. Good rule, silver rule. Jesus calls us to act with justice and help alleviate poverty in the world. That's the golden rule. Jesus' golden rule takes morality to another level, and so this is why some thinkers and academics and sociologists have observed a general stereotype, and I know this could be dangerous, especially knowing that we have a mixed audience from people from all over the world, but one comment of a general broader stereotype is that between Eastern nations and Western nations, Eastern nations based off of a worldview of karma and Western nations based off the Judeo-Christian worldview, have had very different responses towards social justice and helping alleviate suffering. If you think about it for a moment, Hinduism and Buddhism teach that if someone is suffering, then it's because of sin from that life or a past life, and it's what they deserve, so let them just live with that suffering. In that sense, the silver rule does not help alleviate any of the pains and sufferings of this world. You're a bit passive to those suffering around you. It's only when you climb the Mount Everest of ethics and Jesus' golden rule, and as far as we can tell, it seems as if this is unique to Jesus. There are not other Jews or rabbis that have been quoted from his tradition that have said it in the positive form. The Hillel quote I read to you earlier about standing on one foot, that was the, the silver rule. So this was way ahead of his time, and I would argue it's still way ahead of our time, even though many of The world around us, the people in the world want to say, we're progressing and we're getting better with our morals. Well, have we really gotten better? Do we really live by even the very basics of the golden rule here in America? Jesus gives us this rule 2,000 years ago, and I think we probably need 2,000 more years of practice and a whole lot of help for the Holy Spirit. In sum, Jesus is encouraging us not to have warm, fuzzy feelings toward one another, and then people will have warm, fuzzy feelings back. It's not about a feeling. It's about an action. 
In other places, he's going to talk about love God and love your neighbor as the whole summary of the law and prophets, as he says here. The love that he's talking about in those passages and in this one is requiring you to do some kind of service and loving action toward others. Do unto others. What you wish someone would do to you, you are to do to them. I think one way to explain this text is to say that Jesus wants someone else's happiness ahead of your happiness. And so therefore to actively seek their well-being even if it comes to great cost to yourself. So say it this way, do unto others as what you would have them do to you. The way you want people to treat you, that's the way you should treat them. Or a simple rule of thumb, a guide for living, ask yourself, what would I want people to do for me? Then take the initiative and in some small way start doing that to them. It's simple, isn't it? It's not hard for us to understand, but as you look around in our society, in our families, and maybe even in our church, how are we actually doing at applying it? How well do you stop for a moment in a conversation that's starting to get heated, thinking about the other person, who they are, where they're coming from, put yourself in their shoes and imagine how might they want to be treated? Might they really want me to hear them out and fully listen to them? Or should I just be launching my next argument? Who cares what they just said to me? I need to win the argument. Children and parents should take note of the golden rule. I suggest this is probably one of the main things. If there's one thing that our children should be getting from our parenting, it should be, children, is that the way you want people to treat you? And continually, as they're doing things that seem crazy. Why would you just hit your sister like that? And then say, would you want me to hit you like that? No, I wouldn't. Well, then why would you do that to them? This is normal instruction in the home that I think should be use, useful and probably every day, right? How about in our marriages or our close family members or roommates that we live with? Are we doing a good job of applying this golden rule in these close and intense and intimate settings? Or or are we just stepping and walking all over people? Could you imagine what your work environment might look like if people didn't live by Darwinistic teaching of survival of the fittest dog-eat-dog -dog world and climb all over each other so that they can succeed and achieve their dreams, but instead people treated each other in this way? And what would television look like and politicians and debates and discussions. You see, it doesn't take much for us to see that we don't need 11 more rules for living. We're having a hard time just doing this one basic one. And the way Jesus talks is that this basic rule is a summary of all the rules, and this is the one guiding principle that we should focus on for our whole lives. So look carefully at the text, and you'll see exactly what I mean here. Jesus says, so whatever you wish. And this word whatever means in everything. And then when he talks about the word others, he uses the Greek word anthropoi, which you should hear in uh, the, the name is different from uh, adelphoi. And adelphoi is the word you'd use for close brothers, sisters, or somebody in your, your tribe. Anthropoi is the word you'd use to talk about humanity. The whole study of anthropology comes from that word. The study of humans. And that's the word he uses in this text. So whatever 
you want to be done in any situation to all of humanity, all kinds of people. Jesus is talking about not just family members, but also strangers. Not just friends, but also your enemies. Not just people of your gender, but also other genders. Not just people of your same skin color or ethnicity, but others. Different religions. Jesus is very broad in his scope in the language and the words he uses. In everything, in every situation, and to all people on the earth. This is the rule to live by. And this is why Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. It is the law and the prophets. That's the very literal translation of this phrase. Some translations will put it, this sums up the law and the prophets, and that gets the idea. He's saying that if we live by this rule, it will sum up the essence of what is taught in the Old Testament scriptures. This is what the whole Old Testament teaching was about. If you're new to Christianity, you may not be familiar with this phrase, but it's a very common Jewish phrase. Law and prophets means law, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law, the books of Moses. The prophets, many evangelical Christians, not Jewish people, think, oh, the prophets, that's like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the latter books. But actually, the prophets in a Jewish worldview would have meant all the rest of the Old Testament because anybody who wrote the Bible would have been considered a prophet, and the historical books like Joshua and First and Second Samuel were considered the prophetic books. So if you get your mind in the Jewish worldview of Jesus' day, when he says law and prophets, he's basically summarizing the whole Old Testament up to that point that Jesus and all of his followers and friends have as Jews. So standard Jewish way to refer to the whole Bible. If you're paying close attention to this phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that you should notice is that it's not the first time Jesus used it. So turn your eyes back over a page to Matthew chapter 5, and you'll notice that Jesus uses this phrase in what I have been calling the thesis statement of the whole sermon. So look at Matthew 5 with me in verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a sense to which, because of the way he uses this phrase, law and prophets, I would agree with this understanding, is that not only is Matthew 7, verse 12, summarizing the whole Old Testament. But it's summarizing the whole teaching or the main thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to Matthew 7, verse 12, and you will notice that the first word is the Greek word soon, translated in your English Bibles, so, or another fine translation would be therefore. And you should know that every time you see a word like that, a so or a therefore, it's time to ask what it's there for. And here, I think the best explanation is not just the immediate context in the last paragraph that Zach taught us last week, or even about judging others, although it very much applies to that, but it takes us all the way back to what I just read to you about Jesus' other statement about the law and the prophets. Your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And then he goes on from there and he expounds the law and the prophets for Matthew 5, 6, and the first half of 7. And then he says this last summary word to sum up all that he's just been saying. And he says, therefore, all I've been trying to say, if you want me to sum it all up, the essence of the Sermon on the Mount, do unto others as you would have them do to you. So the law and the prophets, the Sermon on the Mount, is summarized with the golden rule. One simple structure of the Sermon on the Mount while we're talking about the bigger structure is the introduction is the first 13, 14 verses of the Sermon on the Mount where you get the Beatitudes and the salt and light section. Then the thesis statement that I just read to you about your righteousness exceeding the scribes and the Pharisees. The 14 teachings about the righteous living that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. The summary statement of the golden rule here. And then next week, we will get to the conclusion. And this is why I decided not to dive into the conclusion, because the conclusion actually is very much a uh, linear thought connected together by this series of twos. Two, Two gates. Two paths. Two different trees. Two different confessions. And two different builders. And so from verses... 13 to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to just see this constant use of two. There's two ways to live. There's two different kinds of professors of Christianity or followers of Jesus. There's two different wise men and a foolish man. So let's just focus in on this main teaching. Jesus comments on the Bible of his day and wraps it all up with the golden rule, summarizing the message of the Old Testament, and the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's important that before we move on, that we ask a side question. If the whole Old Testament is summarized in the Golden Rule, does that mean that the whole Old Testament's message is simply rules? And a lot of people, I think, when they think about the Old Testament, or the Bible in general, maybe you're new to Christianity, welcome, we're glad you're here, please come back anytime, we're more than happy to have people come and explore and learn about Christianity. But the Bible is not primarily a rule book. And I don't think we should take Jesus' words here to say that when he looks at the Old Testament, he basically sees a big rule book. I think what we should see is that what he's saying is that what is God demand of us, and that during Jesus' day, there's a debate amongst rabbis and Jews in particular about trying to figure out, we need to figure out how to live in this world and and figure out how to obey God's commands. So remember the story of Hillel and the guy standing on one leg and trying to say, hey, how can we sum up the law into one command? Or later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to be asked, "What's what's the greatest commandment? This is an ongoing conversation in Jesus' day, so we shouldn't pull out from that conversation and say, oh, so therefore read the whole Old Testament is just a big rule book. Rather, how should we read the rules within that bigger book called the Old Testament? To put it another way, what I'm trying to suggest is that the Old Testament and the Bible in general is first and foremost a story with rules in it, not a rule book with a few stories illustrating the point of obeying the rules. And to get that mixed around really causes big-time damage to your understanding of God, your view of your Christian faith, and it essentially makes us more Pharisees instead of going beyond the scribes and Pharisees like Jesus is asking us. Rules are good, but they are not the main point of the Bible's story. They are not the gospel. 
God is the main character. He is the main point of the story. And the story is ultimately good news. One of the best illustrations of this is the Ten Commandments. And I love to just quiz people and say, what's the first thing listed in the Ten Commandments? And a lot of people go, well, the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. And I'm like, nope, that's not the first thing. There's an introductory statement in the Ten Commandments, a prologue, an introduction that says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Based on that, rule number one, have no gods before me. And that should be really insightful for all of you if you think, wow, the Bible's just a bunch of rule books. Because it's not. It's a big, big story, and you have to get all the way to like Exodus chapter 20, which is 70 chapters of story, of narrative, before you get to the Ten Commandments. And with that one introductory sentence, he's trying to remind you, hey, I'm the Lord your God. I have rescued a people out of slavery. I am a deliverer and a savior. On the basis of my saving you, not on the basis of your rule performance or your law keeping, on that basis, I want to engage in a relationship with you. Do you see the difference, my friend, between a storybook with rules in it for how God's going to relate with you versus a rule book with stories that illustrate how you should obey these rules? To miss that point is to really miss the entire Bible. And that's why I think when we look at this statement from Jesus, we should make sure that we understand him to be summarizing the rule portion of the greater story, not just the whole story is summed up with, well, basically the whole Bible's love your neighbor as yourself, and that's it. Do unto others the golden rule. One of the quotes I read recently in a book that I was working through for some schoolwork I've been doing says, rules, when given, can change your life for a day. But stories just change your life. And this is one of the reasons why as a church, embassy church, and me as a pastor, I have been committed to hopefully every single week, no matter where we're at in the Bible, hopefully helping you see how that part of the Bible fits into the grander story. The gospel story is the word we use a lot. The gospel message. If you're one of those note-taker type people and you want to kind of figure out how do I summarize the story of the Bible, one way that many people have done is to talk about creation, part one, fall, the sin that entered into the world, part two, the law and prophet section, or Israel, part three, Jesus, part four, and then new creation, part five. That's the bigger story we're talking about. So when we read Matthew's gospel, that's in the part four, the Jesus section. So creation, part one, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the one creator king over all, and he speaks like a king. And when you're a king and you speak, what are your servants supposed to do? Rebel? Disobey? Wait a while? Or just do whatever you say? Genesis 1 is a king who speaks, and whatever he says, the whole creation responds and obeys and does what he says, and that's how the whole creation is formed. Its climactic moment in the creation is when he makes man and woman in his own image, which is the language of kingship. If you've ever wondered, what does that phrase, the image of God, mean? My shorthand summary is prince and princess. It means to rule and, have sub and, rule and, and to have dominion over to subdue the earth. It's to talk about taking God's kingly character and you being a ruler on the earth. Not being king, 
but having a delegated responsibility of caring for the earth. And so we're placed in this garden-like paradise in the first two chapters. And what we see is that the ruling over the earth goes very poorly by our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that's part two, fall. Sin comes into the world. Death through sin. God banishes them from that garden paradise and his presence. But it's through part three, the law and the prophets, through this Israel story where God says, I'm going to choose a people. And this people will rescue the whole earth from this people. They will crush evil and they will bring about this new creation. And so there's all these echoes and promises and foreshadows of a day when that will come. And eventually in part four, the man who brings that story and all those promises together is a man named Jesus. Jesus is the part four of the story. He is the one who redeems and restores and lives the life that you and I should have lived. And when we get to the Jesus part of the story, I want you to ask and think to yourself, whatever parts you've heard, do you think he does a good job of not just preaching the golden rule, but actually living by it? Does Jesus love us by taking action, or is he passive? Does he think to himself, I wonder what those people are going through and how I can put myself in their shoes and then actually take small steps or big steps? And the more you study the life of Jesus, and hopefully if you stick around this church for some time, we're going to look at actual stories of how Jesus interacts with people on the earth. And I'd say he is the quintessential, the ultimate example of somebody who embodies the golden rule. He doesn't just sit there and think and imagine, what would it be like for me to put myself in those people's shoes? No, he leaves the throne room of heaven. He comes into the form of a human, and he becomes like us in every way possible, facing every temptation that you and I face. He takes our place. He does not live by the wooden rule or the silver rule. He lives by the golden rule. Think for a moment. What if Jesus came to the earth and lived by the wooden rule, and treated everybody the way that they treated him. When mobs of people tried to kill him, and he said, well, I'll just kill you back, tit for tat. You insult me, you spit on me, you reject me, you call me a blasphemer. Is that what he did? What if he lived just by the silver rule? What if he didn't focus on helping people but just wanted to make sure that his entire existence on the earth was just not to increase the sufferings and injustice in the world, but could just stand back and say, well, that's just kind of what you deserve because of karma. That's not the way he lived. He was constantly and repeatedly, as you read through the stories of Jesus, going to the people who were suffering, and he was alleviating their suffering. And it's so interesting when you think of, say, for example, the story of the woman who has this bleeding problem. And she's been bleeding for a decade or more, 17 years. And she's gone to every single doctor that she could possibly go to. And eventually she comes and she touches Jesus' fringe of his garment. And she's healed instantly. And there's this big crowd of people around him and he doesn't know who, who touched him, but he felt some power go out of him. And I think there's something really important with that story to show that 
when Jesus is healing, when Jesus is redeeming, when Jesus is bringing life into darkness, there's a little something of him that's coming out and going into those people and going into the earth. And it's like he's losing some of himself because ultimately he's going to heal and redeem and restore the whole world by completely emptying himself as he dies on the cross. He would take our place, the whole humanity, every single person, would be all the sins of the world laid upon him as he dies on the cross. His, his happiness was not first and foremost, but it was our happiness, actively seeking our well-being, even though it cost him greatly. You see, as we look at Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, and we get to that fifth and final part of the story, we notice that it's not just that Jesus died to forgive you of your sin, but to actually make you new creation, where the Holy Spirit, when Jesus ascended into heaven and poured out his Spirit upon us, empowers you with the ability to actually obey the golden rule, to live in such a way where Jesus teaches you to live, from selfish living to an others-centered sort of life. So I want you to think about our church I want you to think about our mission. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus. We've talked recently about thinking about our mission as speaking God's word and serving God's world in the ways that Jesus did. Well, I think this, more than any other message, is probably going to be helpful for us to put some bearings on. What does that mean? Sum that up. Practically, what are we covenanting together to do as a church? Well, it's this. It's taking on the message of Jesus by the empowered Holy Spirit, understanding the whole story and how these rules fit within them. Not getting all bent out of shape because there's rules. We don't need to fear rules to think, oh, that's legalism. But rather, we can say, no, rules are good when they're understood in light of the whole story. We're not saved by these rules. But man, are we helped by them. And man, do they encourage us and help us and straighten us out when we have gone off the path. So this teaching, hopefully, should be very relevant to our church's vision and mission of being a Jesus-centered community, focused on making disciples, understanding the gospel story as the central message of the whole Bible, and loving each other as we would love ourselves as the main thrust for what that means once we receive that message. Is that you? Does this describe you in any way, any form or fashion? Have you turned from your ways of wooden rule or silver rule type living? And do you even aspire to the golden rule and climb the Mount Everest that is this ethic of Jesus to do unto others as you would have them do to you? Or has this whole sermon just been one of those, yeah, I've heard that before, I get it. Let's move on, let's get to something good. I intentionally wanted it to just be, no, let's just sit here for a second. Let's think about the implications. Let's pray and spend a whole week, if you would, thinking, meditating, applying, discussing how well and how much better can we apply this rule to our parenting, our marriage, our families, our relationships with our siblings, our workplace, our society, all of your comments on social media. Could you imagine? 
I want you to. Start imagining what it might look like if by the empowered Holy Spirit, more and more of us became like this. I don't think we need Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for living. I'm sure many of them are worth thinking about and applying to our life. I've read over several of them. But Jesus' one golden rule is, I think, worth living and dying and centering your whole life around. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, for the grand story of the Scriptures that tells us how Jesus redeemed and rescued the sins of the world through the golden rule love of Jesus, by looking at our suffering, by looking at our plight and our, our problems and our difficulty, and saying, I won't just think about what it's like to be in your shoes, I will put myself in your shoes. I will take your place. And we thank you for Jesus' death on a cross, his resurrection power that redeems and restores and makes possible a whole new world of living, that the impossible becomes possible by faith through God's Spirit. Not because of our great acts of morality or our willpower, but because of your great power in and through us, not by might, not by strength, but by your spirit. We're praying now that your spirit fall fresh on us, that an old, archaic, ancient saying that we've heard a thousand times possibly becomes fresh and alive and repeated and meditated on. May this be true of this congregation, and may it be true of many others as we seek to multiply our making of disciples all over the face of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.